If this is your first time today, we are in a new series, or we are in a series, it's called God Questions, and this is part five of six. So next week is our uh, last question in, in God Questions. Today we're going to be dealing with the subject, Is the Bible True?, and that is a big subject. We could write a few books on it. We could spend a series on the subject. And I'm going to try to conquer it in one um, message. And so I'll probably miss a lot of things that you have questions about. Uh, next week we're going to talk about do all religions lead to God? Do all paths lead to heaven? You know, what about that? And uh, I think that's going to be a very a beneficial. So this is not like your cri- typical Christmas in December. Uh, we will have a Christmas message on December 22nd. So here we go. In 2005, Professor David Foster Wallace gave the commencement address at Kenyon College. Wallace's speech went viral and became very popular. After his death by suicide in 2008, the entire 22-minute uh, message uh, was put on YouTube. You can check it out right after the service, or you could check it out right now. Just don't have the sound. Um, Wallace was a kind of a philosopher, an intellectual, and a best-selling and award-winning uh, author. Um, he took his own life in the midst of a deep depression, something that he had struggled with throughout life. And uh, here is a quote from that commencement speech. And uh, there's really an amazing insight here. Um, He was in the midst of a search for truth. Here's what he writes. This is what was in his message. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you uh, tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the grave. Worship power you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more and more others to keep that fear at bay. You will need power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Pretty significant insight uh, in that speech. He says, there's no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships something, and you get to choose. I have no reason to believe that David Foster Wallace ever became a follower of Christ, ever placed his faith in Jesus, but he was searching for the truth. The Bible claims that it speaks truth. Truth about God, truth about humans. Um, It describes man's fallen nature and God's plan for eternal salvation and uh, life-changing transformation. So here's my question. What do you think about the Bible? What do you think? Do you trust the Bible? Do you think the Bible is true? When I was in college, I thought the Bible 
uh, was a waste of time. I thought the Bible was full of stories and myths invented by man. Today, however, I believe the Bible is true and totally trustworthy. This book, this Bible, um, is worthy and reliable. Today, this is what I think. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I can say that this book has changed my life, it's changed my marriage, it's changed my family, it's changed my priorities. It changes how I spend my time, it changes how I spend my money, it changes how I value people and relationships. How about you? What do you think about the Bible? So today I'm going to attempt to ask and answer the question, is the Bible true? And we're going to look at three different options, as I seem to every week. Um, first option is this, the Bible is not trustworthy. This is a very popular view in your world, isn't it? The Bible is not trustworthy. It's not true. Uh, many people in your world uh, hold this position. Maybe it's your classmates. Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's a professor. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a friend. The Bible is not trustworthy. Why do people believe the Bible is not trustworthy? Well, one, some have had little or no exposure to the Bible. When I grew up in the 1950s, if you can imagine how long ago that might have been, every family in our neighborhood had a Bible, at least one, a family Bible. Our family had a Bible. We didn't read it. I didn't ever see anybody in our family read it, but we had one. That was kind of normal, I thought, for families. However, today... It's very easy for families to grow up, for kids to grow up in a home and never see a Bible at all, or never really hear much about the God of the Bible. Secondly, some have had bad experiences with so-called Christians or bad experiences with churches, and this is sad, and I know it's true. People have had bad experiences with people who call themselves Christians. Some Christians are mean and argumentative and hypocritical. And if that's what Christians are like, why would anybody want to read their Bible if it makes them mean and argumentative and hypocritical? Some Christians make headlines in sex scandals or are caught up in materialism and pyramid schemes. The Bible doesn't seem like a very good, attractive book if that's what it's producing. And sometimes the way Christians and churches behave keep people away from their serious interest in the Bible. A third reason is that some have learned that from second and third and fourth hand sources that they shouldn't trust the Bible. Now, this is extremely common that I have found. It was, it, that's exactly how I approach the Bible. Um, maybe it's an intelligent friend at work or school. Uh, it might be a philosophy professor or a, a science teacher. I remember my freshman year in college attending a class in Western civilization. The history professor I just, I just went to hear every day. He was just brilliant. And uh, throughout this first semester, he convinced me that there was no heaven and no hell just by an historical approach to sort of the world. And I, that makes sense. He's a smart guy, and he's really popular, and he's a fantastic communicator. So I just began to adopt that approach. 
A little bit later, I remember a friend of mine named Joel who happened to be a pastor, which I didn't really hang out with pastors, but um, to be kind to Sue, uh, I would speak to Joel from time to time, and I remember he came to visit me, and he knew I was a major in philosophy, and he knew I was an atheist, and he said, Jerry, what do you think of the Bible? I said, well, I think it's full of myths, and um, there's a lot of mistakes, and I just don't think it's worth my time. And uh, he said, well, have you ever read it? Oh, well, see, I read a couple of verses. You know, I looked up some verses in Sunday school. But I knew as a philosophy student that to be honest and to have integrity with information like that, you had to study it for yourself. Uh, You had to reason through for yourself if you were going to be a person of integrity. Sure, you can have an opinion, but not based on... uh, facts or knowledge and so he challenged me to start reading the book of John so I started reading the book of John found it very fascinating and then I got sidetracked for four four more years Um, but I went back and finished it and my life has never changed Um, so some people have second third and fourth hand sources but do you have first exposure have you read the Bible. That's one of the biggest issues about people who reject the Bible. They do it without reading it or evaluating it seriously and honestly. Uh, Fourth, some are convinced the Bible is loaded with contradictions. Someone shows uh, you an apparent contradiction and it's easy to come to the conclusion conclusion that therefore the Bible must be full of errors without searching for an explanation. I can tell you firsthand there are a lot of easy little contradictions that have good explanations, good explanations that are fair, um, and um, without searching, you have to be careful what you say about contradictions in the Bible. Number five, some believe that many stories in the Old Testament were derived from early Babylonian and Assyrian myths. This is really popular, popular on the uh, college and graduate level. Um, for example, if you study some civilizations like Uh, the Babylonian and the Assyrian, you will find that they have a great flood story in their history. How how their ancestors navigated a great flood. How they were rescued. And, um, well, there's a a story of a flood in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And so the conclusion that some have reached is that, well, the Bible is borrowing from the Babylonian and the Assyrian Assyrian myth of this story. It's just a myth. And uh, another way to look at this is, well, there was a flood and it was recorded in Genesis 6 through 9 and there are other people in the world that heard about it. And they're learning from the Genesis 6 through 9 story. Uh, Sixthly, uh, number six, some believe the New Testament was written in the 4th and 5th centuries. That is, four to 500 years after the events. So uh, there would be no eyewitnesses to what happened. This is based on facts, or this is, excuse me, this is based on theories that came out of the 1800s. Nearly all of those have been answered. There's a lot of intellectuals who are still operating on those theories that have been disproven if they study the facts and study the information that's available. So we're talking about reasons why people don't believe in the Bible. Number seven, some have misconceptions like believing the Bible states that things like God helps those who help themselves. So, you know what? It's just not in the Bible. 
Uh, this is kind of an American rugged individualism perspective. You know, pick up yourselves by your bootstrap, a sort of human strength. Um, all I'm saying is it's just a misconception. Here's a great one. Cleanliness is next to godliness. You can imagine some mother invented this. Get her kids to either take, wash their hands or take a bath. Uh, that is not in the Bible. Um, another one is the earth is flat. That's not in the Bible. Um, another one is the earth is the center of the universe. That's not in the Bible, but it was taught by the church. Actually, in 1616, um, the Roman Catholic Church condemned Galileo for believing a new theory that the earth rotated around the sun instead of the sun rotating around the earth. So, you know, people have held that view, but it's not in the Bible. An eighth reason, and this is the last one I have here, some people don't understand how the Bible came to us. Um, this is kind of significant. People often have unique expectations. What kind of knowledge would you have to have to know the Bible is true? They're looking for some kind of super knowledge way different than any other kind of knowledge that we have or we deal with. Um, and um, for example, how did the Bible come to us? Did God just sort of hand a gold leaf, black leather bound King James Version to Moses and say, here it is? He didn't do that. Or, you know, did he... Walk up to P Did Jesus walk up to P Peter with a 75-pound Bible and say, Peter, this is the Bible. Now you have the Word of God. No, he didn't do it that way. The Bible was written over a period of time, 15 to 1,800 years. Um, it was written by 40 different authors. It was written on clay tablets. That's hard to put those in a leather-bound version with gold leaves. It was written on animal, sk animal skins called vellum. It was written on papyrus or paper, and often they were glued together into scrolls, and those could be 40, 50, 75 feet long. How would you like to carry those to church? Just one, just one book being very heavy. So these are eight reasons why people don't think the Bible is trustworthy, and you've probably heard them, and maybe those are some of your questions too. So why should we consider the Bible to be reliable? This is a very important consideration. When you, um, when you deal with the question, is the Bible reliable? And this is where the, where the whole thing breaks down in explaining. You have to bring the same measurements to evaluating the Bible that you bring to all literature everywhere at, for all time. You can't create a separate and unique measurement for the Bible. Or how would you do that? I mean, if it doesn't measure other things, what good is it? So it's important, if we're going to measure the reliability of the Bible, we have to use the same measurement on all other books, all ancient books, all religious books, all the same, same measurements. Um, so there are no separate standards for the Bible. But, but somehow, you know, we just have that expectation. I need proof, and usually it's, um, we, we need this 
absolute proof of certainty before we're going to say the Bible is true. And well, what would that be? What would it take for you or for anyone to have absolute proof, proof of certainty? Um, you're, you're never going to get away from faith. Science can't get away from faith. Everything science does is based on faith. So we have to apply the same standards. Okay, we're going to look at some uh, uh, why you should consider the Bible. First of all, the bibliographic test. Bibliographic test. Biblio refers to book, not the Bible. It's a test for all books. The bibliographic test examines the transmission of the text. That means how did the Bible get to us? What, how did it start? How did it get to us? It examines the quantity, quality, and time span of books of antiquity. It's the same test for all books. So um, first we're going to talk about, you know, the, just hang with me. We're, we're gonna put, show, I'm showing you a measurement for all books. And you have, to, you have to take the Bible through that. Um, the quantity of manuscripts. How many are there? Uh, manuscripts are copies of the originals. How many copies of the originals do we have when it comes to the Bible? Well, when it comes to... We're going to start with the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Hebrew manuscripts are not great in number. Why would that be? Hebrew... He, uh, Old Testament also has a couple of chapters in Aramaic, which looks just like Hebrew, but it's primarily Hebrew. And why aren't there many copies, many manuscripts of the Old Testament today that are ancient? Well, the Jewish scribes usually buried or destroyed imperfect or worn manuscripts. Does that sound like a cop-out? Now, listen carefully here. Making accurate copies of the Old Testament was one of the most important things a Jewish scribe could do. He would give his life to it. He was copying God's book. He would die for it, and sometimes they did. So copying is, was, is, uh, was a highly trained professional, a scribe was, and any mistake that was found, uh, the copy was destroyed. You never kept a copy with a mistake in it. Any kind, no matter how costly, you threw the whole thing out. So when a manuscript of the Old Testament became old or damaged, they burned it or buried it, they destroyed it. They did not allow it to be in existence. Also, Old Testament manuscripts were sometimes destroyed by Israel's enemies. A lot of people wanted to sort of put down Israel, uh, an outsider, a nation would come in, and if they could just put down their religion, sort of show victory over their religion. And one of the things they would try to do is destroy the Old Testament. And so they would burn them, uh, whatever. Another reason why there are not many Old Testament manuscripts is that the Old Testament was standardized by Masoretic Jews in the 6th century. Masoretic Jews. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Masoretic Jews were responsible for copying the Old Testament scriptures. They took this extremely seriously. So they standardized it. They, they came up with a system so that they knew how many letters were on every page that they copied. And they knew um, how many words were on the page. They knew the center, the exact center of the entire Old Testament. They knew the letter, and they checked for these things. 
So what they did was they destroyed every Old Testament manuscript that didn't fit this new system of copying. Um, Okay, so that's the Old Testament. So here's what I'm saying. There are not a huge number of Old Testament manuscripts. It's because they continually destroyed um, older ones or ones with mistakes. Now hang in there because we're going to come back to this. Now we're going to talk about the New Testament, but we're coming back to the Old Testament because there's something called the Dead Sea Scrolls that has an answer for that. In the New Testament, the Greek manuscript quantity is unparalleled in ancient literature. There's an extremely large number of New Testament manuscripts compared with all other ancient literature. There are 5,000 Greek manuscripts. The original language of the New Testament is Greek. There are 8,000 Latin manuscripts. Latin was the language of the Roman Catholic Church, and they copied, they translated uh, the New Testament into Latin from Greek. And then there are 1,000, at least 1,000 Syriac and Coptic copies of the New Testament. That's the Eastern Church. Roman Catholic is the Western Church, the church in the East, um, Syriac and Coptic. Also, there are tens of thousands of citations of the New Testament by the early church fathers. The early church fathers were the disciples of the disciples. For example, Polycarp would be a church father. He was discipled personally by the Apostle John. We know about Polycarp. Other early leaders of the church, right after the death of the apostles, are called church fathers. They, we have a lot of information that they wrote. They wrote sermons, uh, they wrote books, and they quoted scripture in them. You can almost reconstruct the, the entire New Testament from their quotations. Um, so what, what are we saying? We're saying we have information. This is the same kind of information you would apply to any book. Um, and here we're applying it to the Bible. That's the quantity of the manuscripts. Now we're going to talk about the quality of the manuscripts. Are they close to the originals? And here I have a quote from Boa and Moody. Because of the great reverence of the Jewish scribes, this is about the Old Testament, who held, uh, scribes held toward the scriptures, they exercised extreme care in making new copies of the Hebrew Bible. The entire scribal process was specified in meticulous detail to minimize the possibility of even the slightest error. Next slide. The number of letters, words, and lines were counted. The middle of letters of the Pentateuch and the Old Testament were determined. If a single mistake was discovered, the entire manuscript was destroyed. This is the way they did it. But the quality is amazing. The quality of the Old Testament manuscripts surpasses all ancient manuscripts. This is the conclusion of scholars uh, in assessing the Old Testament manuscripts as they relate to other ancient manuscripts. Um, there's not going to be just one thing that says to you, oh, this is absolute proof, I'm totally convinced. But what, what, I'm, what I want to show you is evidence of how reliable the Bible is and how it outweighs any other document in existence anywhere. Next is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 has demonstrated the outstanding accuracy of the Masoretic text back to 200 B.C., the same Bible Jesus used. Here's what happened, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe you've heard of them, maybe you know a lot about them. In 1947, a boy tending his sheep was throwing rocks, 
and he threw a rock into a cave, and he heard something break. And he went into the cave, and he had broken a clay jar that was sealed. Inside that jar was a scroll of a manuscript. It took a couple of years for that to surface publicly into the intellectual community. Once it was discovered, sort of like it went into town and it got sort of traded around and somebody kept it in the back room and then somebody discovered it. Wow, an amazing find here. Where did you get that? And they went back to the Qumran area and they discovered several caves, uh, caves and they were loaded with manuscripts. And it dates back to 200 B.C. to 67 um, A.D. And what they discovered is there's full copies of Old Testament books that date back to 200 B.C. So the oldest Masoretic text of the, this is the Old Testament, we had in modern times was like 895 or 898 A.D., So we're talking 900 years after Christ. That's the oldest Old Testament manuscript. Does that make sense to you? And now we go back 200 years before the birth of Christ. And we have Old Testament books. So now we can compare those books that we found dated at 200 B.C. before Christ. How do they match the Masoretic text that's been saved all these years? They kept copying it. They kept throwing away the bad copies. And uh, scholars are just amazed how accurate the Bible is in the Old Testament. Now, here's the thing. We know that the copies that uh, Jesus used, copies of the Old Testament that Jesus used, Jesus actually, I'm adding a uh, more complicated fact here. Jesus actually quoted the Greek Old Testament. It's called the LXX. It was ordered by Alexander the Great, like 336 B.C. Hebrew scriptures were copied into Greek. Jesus wasn't afraid to use the Greek Old Testament. It's the same Old Testament that Jesus used, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm not saying the one he actually held. I'm saying it's it's an accurate version of the Old Testament. And it's an amazing find for, for Bible scholars. Um, so that's the quality of the Old Testament. The quality of the New Testament is very good and is considered 99.5% pure. And one of the things we're doing here is we're sort of applying scientific principles to the text of Scripture. We're using a scientific method that we would use on any book as far as we can do it. Um, and, you know, they use scientific methods to determine the dates of how old is this piece of literature? Um, wh- how old is the paper that it's on? Um, quality of the New Testament is very good and is considered 99.5% pure. What does that mean? Well, the New Testament didn't have Masoretic scribes who gave their lives to copy. And the New Testament were made, copied by ordinary people. Sometimes the people were so ordinary you would think they were silly, the kind of mistakes that they made. They copied things. A lot of them got destroyed that were copied poorly. But some scribes were just like doodling, you know, just like 
you might, we might do if we ask you to copy the New Testament while I read it to you. Um, but the kind of errors they find in these copies are things like um, a scribe getting to the end of the line, and then he writes the next line, and re- he repeats the line above. He's copying, and he's copying, and he copies the line above, or copies the end of the line above. You know, a human mistake. Another way would be picking up a word. He's sitting there listening. He's writing it down, and he comes across, to, for us, like a word like red. How do you spell it? Well, R-E-D. No, I think it's R-E-A-D. And so mistakes like that are, are made. One scholar, Bruce Metzger, New Testament scholar, said the, the problem isn't that we don't have the New Testament. The problem is we have 101%. And so there are little copy errors like repetition, a little more information. And I don't know if you find this hard or not, but textual critics, um, this is the science. They, they have several doctorates. Usually they know many, many languages can reestablish through study, even using scientific method, can, can reestablish uh, what they believe with great confidence, the original text. Um, and when you talk about changing a word like red to red or adding a small, uh, uh, things like a the or leaving it out does not change any doctrine in the scriptures. So are we saying we have a perfect, I'm saying, I totally trust this, I totally believe this is the word of God. The issue is, see, we don't have the original documents, we don't have um, the original clay tablet that Moses recorded the book of Genesis on, we don't have the original letter, like when Paul wrote the Romans, we don't have Paul's original letter, but you know what? There are no originals of ancient documents. No originals of anybody's. So this is just normal for the transmission of literature. Okay, the time span. This is, uh, this, you got a chart. Let's look at that real quick. A chart in your program. This is the time span. For example, we know that Homer, we believe Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey at about 850 B.C., Today we have 643 copies, no originals, and we believe that it's about 95% accurate. And I have no reason to question that. Look at these others. Herodotus, he wrote around 450 B.C. The oldest one we can find is, is around 900 A.D. There's nothing before that left of Herodotus. There are only eight copies. Eight copies is not enough to determine the purity of it. Euripides, 440 B.C. The oldest copy is 1100 A.D. There's 1,500-year time gap. There's not enough copies, only eight, to see if it's pure or not. Is this like boring you to death? Does it make sense at all? If we come down to Plato, that's a name people know. He, he wrote around, I, I read the Plato's Republic in college, He wrote around 350 B.C. The oldest copy of Plato is 900 A.D. There's a 1,300-year gap, and we only have seven of those back to 900 A.D. Caesar, the emperor of Rome, wrote around 60 B.C. The oldest copy we have is 900 A.D., only 10 copies in existence. Drop down to, uh, to the New Testament. 
written around 60 AD. There's a, there's a gap of, uh, could be 50 to 95 when the, all of the books in the New Testament were compiled during that time period. We have a copy that uh, would have been originally written around 60 AD. The oldest one we have is 130 AD. That's less than 100 years. So there's a significant difference between when it comes to scriptures and all other books. We have 14,000 copies, ancient copies of the New Testament. And scholars say we believe 99.5% pure. And what we're doing, we're, we're applying tests to measure the purity, the accuracy of the original that we would apply to any document. Okay, the internal test. What claims does the Bible make about itself? This is important. It cannot be ruled out. The Bible claims to have been given uh, eyewitness accounts on many occasions. The writers are primary sources, not secondary sources. Um, The Apostle John, for example, wrote the book of John in about 90 AD. Here's what he said in John 19.35. The man who saw... It has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows and he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. Then in twenty one twenty four, he says, this is the disciple who testifies these things, who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Who's the disciple who wrote them down? John. He was an eyewitness. First uh, Peter 5, 1. To the elders among you, Peter writes, an apostle, of the first century, one of Jesus' disciples, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings. Peter saw Jesus crucified on the cross. Peter was a witness to all of Jesus' life those three years in the New Testament. Peter was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.22. Peter is preaching. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Hundreds of people were in the audience when these things happened and when Peter preached. In fact, 3,000 people got saved on this day. This was in Jerusalem. This is where Jesus was crucified. And, um, you know... They didn't produce Jesus' body to prove that he wasn't resurrected. Peter is saying, you are witnesses. You in the audience, you saw these things. You know they're true. You've you've witnessed miracles that Jesus himself um, performed. Uh, It's important to note that neither the Romans or the Jews in the first century refuted the facts that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and that Jesus did miracles. They did not refute any of these things. First um, John 1 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. John's saying, We were there, we heard it with our own ears. We have seen with our own eyes. We have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim the concerning the word of life. He's saying, We touched Jesus after the resurrection. We know how how real this is. Interesting thing about history, all of the 12 disciples were willing to die for the truth of the resurrection. Only the Apostle John did not. He was 
thrown into a vat of boiling oil and lived. It might have been better if he died, I don't know. But um, they all were willing to suffer. People don't suffer like that for a lie. And it wasn't like one or two of them said, we're willing to suffer, and the other ten said, nah. They all stood together on this, and they all uh, were in this, this happened separately to them. Um, Thirdly, the external test, the extra-biblical sources. This means sources that were historical that, that aren't in the Bible. These are important. Let me just name some. Historians who were not Christians. Flavius Josephus, first century Jewish historian, not a Christian, made specific references to John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and James and his antiquities to the Jews. What are we saying? He's just saying, these guys are real. They actually existed. That's pretty significant when you're talking about a source, a primary source that's not a Christian. In a letter in 73 AD, so this is during the New Testament period, a Syrian man named uh, Maraban Serpion to his own son wrote a letter, and he compares the death of Socrates, Pythagoras, and Christ uh, as you know, this outstanding hero. 73 AD, the Apostle Paul was alive. The church was alive. Uh, the, Paul would, uh, the Apostle John would live another 20 years after this. Jesus is mentioned in the Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus, uh, Suetonius, Roman governor, Pliny the Younger, and Lucian the satirist. This is like Saturday Night Live of the first century. They were making fun of, you know, jokes about Jesus because it was such a big deal in the first century. And Jesus' name is mentioned a number of times in the Jewish Talmud, which is a commentary on the Bible and life. Does this prove the Bible? No. It just provides evidence that you ought to weigh, that anybody ought to measure when it comes to the reliability of the Bible. What about archaeology? Archaeology does not prove the Bible, but it's fair to say that archaeological evidence has provided confirmation to hundreds of biblical statements that the way that archaeologists knew about them was from the Bible. Oftentimes, it was a custom, it was the name of a person, or it was a location where a city was, a city that nobody could find. And they would use the Bible to, to begin to find a place to dig. And they would dig and discover a city uh, buried. Um, noted archaeologists William F. Albright, Nelson Glick, and C. Ernest Wright developed great respect for the historical accuracy of the Bible through their archaeological discovery, discoveries. Historically and archaeologically, the Bible has proven highly reliable Now, here's the thing, but the Bible is often given a double standard. Critics aren't willing to use the same measurements that are used for all of literature. Um, And they would view, when it comes to the Bible, they would view it as not meaningful. And one of the big issues that comes, when it comes to this whole issue of the Bible is, uh, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, an anti-supernatural presupposition. That is, miracles are not possible. So if the Bible talks about a miracle, we have to throw it out. That's approach. Now, what if you have an eyewitness account who actually 
observes a real miracle. Is that possible? Well, if you're an anti-supernaturalist, no, we have to look for a natural reason for why it happened. Um, what makes the Bible unique? The Bible has at least 40 different human authors, one divine author. The Bible is a compilation of 66 books with 40 different authors under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the amazing thing is, there is an incredible unity, an incredible unity and story to the entire book. It was written by men of all walks of life on, and all different kinds of education backgrounds. Shepherds, kings, prophets, judges, disciples, fishermen, a physician, a Pharisee, a scribe, a cupbearer to a king. And yet, there was an amazing authority. It was written in three languages on three continents under all conditions. Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, Asia, Europe, and Africa. I mentioned earlier, it was written over a time of uh, 15 to 1800 years, beginning with the time of Moses or even Job, and the last book written around 95 AD. It includes many kinds of literature. There's an amazing thing about how this all fits together different kinds of literature parables, narrative, history, poetry, biography, drama, letters, wise sayings, and prophecy. And yet, there's a theme to the whole book. It is an amazing literary work. Number six, in spite of this vast diversity, there is a tremendous unity of the whole as seen in the revelation of God's character and his plan for world redemption. And this is the story of the Bible. It's God's plan for world redemption. I could say a lot about that, but I'm going to go on. The Bible has survived all kinds of persecution and criticism. It has been persecuted, it has been burned, it has been destroyed, it has been banned. Yet it continues to thrive. It's the number one bestseller. One of my favorite stories is the story of uh, the French writer and intellectual Voltaire, you may have heard of him, um, he made the statement that he believed that within a hundred years of his death, the Bible would disappear from the face of the earth. He died in 1728. Fifty years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his home and his printing pr press and printed thousands of Bibles right from his house. Number eight, it's been translated into more languages, 1,700 plus, than any piece of literature or book. The Bible is definitely unique. So, you know we're only on number one. Number two and three go really fast. Second option, there are problems with the Bible, because I've hopefully been demonstrating evidence that makes the Bible credible, why, you sh why anybody should consider looking at the evidence. Um... There are problems with the Bible. Go back to, okay, now to A. Biblical claims. We must consider, the, if the Bible is reliable, you have to consider the claims. What does it say about itself? Uh, and again, the danger is an anti-supernaturalist presupposition. Miracles don't happen, therefore I can't trust anything with a miracle. Here's what Jesus said, Luke 16, verses 16 and 7. The law and the prophets... That's referring to the Old Testament. We're proclaimed until John, John the Baptist. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for at least for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. What is Jesus saying? He's saying it would be easier for the heaven and earth to pass away, to be destroyed, to be annihilated than it is for one tiny 
change in the Old Testament. Like the crossing of a T or a dotting of an I. God's word stands. That was his point. John 10, 35. If he called them gods, that's a reference to the human judges of the Old Testament. This is a quote from Psalm 82, 6. To whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. All I'm saying is Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus referred to the scripture as its source is from God. We're talking about inspiration. 2 Peter three fifteen and 16. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul. I love this about Peter. Peter was a fisherman. Simple guy. Got, got in trouble a lot with his own speech. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters. It's so confusing. Speaking of them of these matters, next slide. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Read the book of Romans. Peter knew. He couldn't get it all. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying Paul is a writer of scripture on the same level as the Old Testament. 2 Peter one twenty one. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying the writers of Scripture were moved along by the Spirit, that it was the Holy Spirit who prompted them to write and what to write. The next one is fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Uh, there are new, numerous passages in the Old Testament about the rise and downfall of nations and cities. There are over 300 predictions in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Try reading the book of Isaiah and see how many you can find. See how many you find in Isaiah 53. Um, the Bible has much to say about the nation Israel, both past and future. Now, here's a major thing about prophecy in the Old Testament and the Bible, not just the Old Testament. Think of this. The nation Israel was really destroyed in 70 AD. Roman Empire came in and demolished Jerusalem destroyed the nation, Israel was no longer a nation after 70 AD. They were just wiped out. But they, they hung out in pockets and they, they kept, you could find Jewish people all over the world, as you still can today. Their number is so low and has been so low that they should have been lost and absorbed by culture. But they weren't. What happened in 1948? The world felt so bad about World War II and what happened in World War II that the world got together and gave the Jewish people back their nation, their land, the land of Israel. And right now it's the center. It's been, in my lifetime, it's been the center of attention in, in world news. And it's going to continue to be. And here's the deal. No, but a lot of people didn't take prophecy seriously because where's Israel? They're nowhere. They don't even exist. And now they exist. And people have started studying the Bible seriously about the future and about how does the nation Israel fit into the future. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. A problem of interpretation, observation one. Most denominations, I'm, I'm going to just finish on two and I'm not going to do three. 
Most denominations have concurred over the fundamental truths of Christianity, like God, man, sin, and salvation, as evidenced in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Here's the deal. Some people think you just come to the Bible, and there's about two million different interpretations, so you can believe whatever you want, because that's what Christians do. That's their approach to the Bible. But if you look historically, all of the major denominations have believed the central truths of Christianity at some point. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, both ancient statements of faith, um, have been uh, supported by Catholics, Episcopalians, Anglicans, Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Lutherans, and a whole bunch of others. It's a really broad diversity of Christendom right there. But when it comes to the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Trinity, that Jesus is God and the, and the sin of man and that salvation is by grace through faith. Um, a large number historically have embraced this. They don't always stay with it because they've sometimes changed their view of Scripture. But there's a tremendous around unity around the basics of Christendom. Observation two, problems of disagreement in interpreting the Bible occur when inconsistent methods of interpretation are applied. Like taking a verse out of context really important principle of interpretation. Don't take it out of context. It's not like you can take a verse and make it say whatever you want it to say because you like it. Um, problems of disagreement happen over giving unique meanings to words. Meanings of words aren't about what you think they are. They're about what the text says and what the meaning of the word says objectively in any dictionary or lexicon. Um, it's like rejecting the problem of disagreement happens with rejecting of supernaturalism there are churches today that basically reject the miracles They're, they call themselves Christians but they don't believe the Bible is really true and so yeah we would have disagreements principles of interpretation three quick ones let the Bible speak for itself then draw out the meaning of the text do not read your meaning into the text the term is exegesis, where you study the language, you study the subject, you study the verb, you study the object, you study the meaning of those words, and you draw out the meaning of the text. Eisegesis is when I come in and I, this is what I want it to mean, this is how I'm going to teach it, and I bring the meaning to the text, and that's not biblical study, it's not a principle of interpretation. Secondly, interpreting the scripture in light of the immediate and broad context. Study the verse bef before and after the verse you're studying. Study many verses before and after. Study the chapters before and the chapters after. Study the books before, the books by the same author. Study all the books of Paul to see if this is consistent with what Paul teaches. How does this fit with the New Testament? Does it fit with the Old Testament? Is there an Old Testament background? Study the context. Obviously, if you were studying an Old Testament passage, you wouldn't expect it to be um, interpreted or you wouldn't expect it in the immediate context of the New Testament because the New Testament didn't exist when it was written. Thirdly, interpret Scripture in plain and normal way. This is really, really important. For example, the text should be considered symbolically or allegorically or metaphorically only if it was the intention of the author. What did the author intend? For example, the trees of the field clap their hands. Trees have hands? What is the author saying? Some people say the Bible is stupid because they say trees have hands. No, it's poetry. The writer's 
talking about the trees and their movement. And, you know, people read poetry and they expect that kind of thing. And that was the writer was intending. It's a figure of speech. Jesus said, this is a debatable one, at the communion, he, he held out the bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What, was that literal or was it figurative? If it was literal, he wanted them to actually chow down on his hand. No, he was holding bread and the bread was symbolical of his body. It's a problem of science in the Bible. Examples uh, in creation and evolution. We've touched on this already. We could write four or 500 pages on this. Um, personally, I believe in a six-day creation of 24 hours a day. Uh, you don't have to agree with me to be a Christian. That's what I believe. I have a very high view of science, very high view of science, uh, because, and I believe because creation has such an order, scientists are able to study it. Um, if, and here's one of the things that, whether it relates to the Bible or anything about Christianity, Supernatural events are beyond the realm and scope of science. Do you get that? It's not their job to find God. And if they did, they wouldn't know what to do with him because he doesn't fit into the scientific method. It's a spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is not in the scientific realm. Um, the Bible never intended to be a scientific te textbook. Sometimes people want to bring uh, scientific standards from the 20th century or the 21st century onto the Bible. Uh, the Bible tells us certain information about the origin of things, who God is and who man is. It teaches about right living and moral choices. The Bible does not tell us everything there is to know. Science can only give us theories about the origin of the universe, not fact. It can, it, science can't speak to us about morality. It can't really speak to us about God and it has nothing to say about spiritual things. Thirdly, the Bible uses phenomenological language describing nature as appears. It uses words like sunrise and sunset. Those are words that I use. It's not meant to be scientific. It's, it's the language that we, the, uh, the way things appear. The Bible uses the term four corners of the earth. Some people think that means the Bible is saying the earth is flat. We use that kind of language, the four corners of the earth. What does that mean? It means north and south and east and west. Um, and so the, the f third point is the Bible is trustworthy. And what are the implications? The implications is there is a real God. He's spoken. He said things about you and me. And he's shown us a way to have a relationship with him. That's, those are the implications. What are you going to do with them? I know I've just downloaded it a ton of information, maybe way more than you were interested in. But I want you to know there are answers and that anybody can find them. Okay? Let's stand together and pray. Father, I just want to thank you for your word. And um, I pray that people today may have a confidence in the reliability of your word. More importantly, we need to know that it's our responsibility to respond to you and to respond to your word and to be accountable to you.
And Father, it's my pray, prayer that um, our confidence in the scripture would, would grow and not only would we just be confident, but that we'd trust it, that we would study it, and we would seek to apply it to our own hearts and our own lives. May we honor you because you've given us this book. In Jesus' name.